Hello, and welcome back to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. I'm Jackie Dietrich, the show's director, and this podcast is powered by Economic Impact Catalyst. And today, we're sharing an amazing conversation with another incredible guest while on the cusp of rebranding our company, which started in 2018 as Startup Space, to now Economic Impact Catalyst to reflect our bigger mission to activate a world where there is equitable and inclusive access to entrepreneurship. This podcast holds special meaning because it's rooted in a deep belief in the power of entrepreneurs to change the world. And you'll be hearing from David Ponraj, our company's founder, who chose entrepreneurship to have more autonomy over his path to creating a better future for his family, and a belief that others should have the same opportunity for wealth creation. David is joined by one of our mutual heroes, Dr. Sara Sarasvathi, a world-renowned scholar in the field of entrepreneurship, whose concept of effectuation explains the logic of thinking entrepreneurs use to build successful ventures, something any economic developer would want to understand. Dr. Sara Sarasvathi is a member of the Strategy, Entrepreneurship, and Ethics area at Darden, and in addition to MBA and doctoral courses in entrepreneurship, she teaches in doctoral programs in Europe, Asia, Latin America, and Africa. She's been named among top entrepreneurship professors by Fortune, Small Business Magazine, Babson College awarded her an honorary doctorate for impact in the area of entrepreneurship education, and her work brings profound insights into how entrepreneurs think, which only catalyzes the ability of economic developers to help entrepreneurs from underrepresented communities build wealth, autonomy, and improve outcomes for their communities. Thank you so much for being a part of our network of catalyzers who collectively work to activate a world where access to entrepreneurship is equitable and inclusive. We hope you'll enjoy this inspiring episode with Dr. Saraswathi and David Ponrosh. I will start by basically telling you um, why we wanted to do this. So we've talked to about 50-odd economic development uh, professionals, and we, over the course of our three and a half years, have kind of evolved to a point where now there's a clear market value. We've uh, grossed, uh, you know, we have contracts over $3 million. We've, we've got uh, a clear product market fit. But we started, just like all entrepreneurs, with just an idea. And over time, now we feel like we have to better position ourselves in the marketplace. So we did a rebrand. It took us six months and we're launching the rebrand. But how you got those uh, women to tell their story uh, was kind of really uh, stuck a note with me and said, can we have uh, Sarah come and ask us to tell our story? But uh, as a conversation where we get to also hear your views on you know, uh, economic development, given that you're in this space. And our big focus, we work with entrepreneurs, about 20,000 entrepreneurs across the country. But when I'm trying to solve a problem, I'm always trying to solve the macroeconomic problem in trying to understand the incentives for city governments, state governments, the SBA, et cetera, on what it's going to take for them to better resource uh, all of the infrastructure needed for supporting entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I have a question. When you say solve the macroeconomic problem, what is the problem? So I understand that you're working at the level of economic development agencies, but what is the macroeconomic problem that you're solving? It's the resource constraint for small businesses, which is that uh, governments have traditionally incentivized, the best case is Amazon HQ2. 
the amount of frenzy it created when Amazon said we're coming up with an HQ2. Uh, there were economic development agencies spending upwards of a million dollars to hire a consultant to put a little uh, proposal together. Um, and that same level of uh, activity doesn't exist when it comes to supporting small and micro businesses, especially one or two person businesses. And so we are trying to help break down these traditional barriers by, for example, I'll give you the best example, uh, PPP, the Payroll Protection Program. That came out and we did a study of 750 small businesses in uh, Wayne County uh, in Southeast Michigan. And we found that about only 20% of people of color said they applied for PPP. About 80% of the white businesses we had interviewed uh, said they had applied for PPP. And when we dug down further and said, okay, why? A lot of the times they said, well, the criteria is you need to have a trusted banking relationship and you need to have your cash flow statements. Primary two things. If you don't have either of these, you automatically disqualify because the banker is the only one who can submit on your behalf to the SBA. Most of these micro businesses that were people of color did not ever have a banking relationship. They, that, did, that concept didn't exist. They didn't have a banker they could call. A lot of the white businesses could call the banker. And so and there are the several parts problem. of the country where people literally do not even have a bank account, let alone a relationship with a banker, right? Yeah. yeah. And so that problem we're trying to highlight with the SBA and say, let's build an infrastructure. And so they just announced a hundred million dollar uh, nav- uh, pilot program to help these kinds of problems. Yeah. And it's a very interesting problem. But uh, may I suggest, uh, you know, uh, having some uh, training in cognitive science and the way we think and decide, but also in the way we learn and teach. Uh, framing is a very important issue. I think sometimes we are, you know, by framing the problem as a resource constrained problem, everybody focuses on like getting the resources, which is what they did with the PPP, right? But I also see this, let's reframe it. Um, It's an education problem too, right? The reason people could not come and get the resources that were actually there Part of it is no relationship with the banker, but also not being able to go to somebody and say, hey, we've got like 20 families here or 200 families here uh, with lots of little businesses and things, and we do not have banking relationships. What do we do? Somebody needs to take leadership on that and get that done, even without the banking relationship, right? So that is entrepreneurial. And so one of the things you want to think about it is there is a resource constraint issue, but one of the most important constraints is the fact that people do not know how to do some of these things, right? Um, So just one of my absolute latest papers that just came out uh, is called The Middle Class of Business. And in that uh, paper, what I am looking at is this, looking at entrepreneurship from the macro perspective. And actually looking at, if you look at the landscape of all businesses in any economy, right? Whether you think about everything from whether US or Finland to Rwanda or Indonesia or wherever. uh, And one of the things we see is that most businesses are really small, right? It's like you start with self-employment and then many of them will have one to four employees at the most. 
And then very, very, very few will be like what we call the unicorns, right? The, the businesses that become multi-billion dollar businesses. And we also know that between 60 to 85% of all businesses are also family businesses um, around the world, more uh, so in a developing country and but slightly less so uh, in a country like the US, but it's still the majority. So when you start looking at this landscape of businesses, uh, one of the things you find in terms of policy initi initiatives or economic development initiatives, what they do is they target uh, what I call the, the small end of it in some ways, right? So imagine like this diagram, right? With the vertical axis being the number of businesses and the horizontal axis being the size of businesses over time. Uh, government money or public money sort of goes to the vertical axis, getting more people to start companies, uh, giving them the seed money so that they can get off the ground, uh, things like that. Even uh, microfinance targets uh, there, so and, and uh, whether it's private money or public money. And then private money chases the unicorns, right? So they're looking for growth, fast growth, um, you know, and also high magnitude growth, that's where. But, the, but, but then I looked at the diagram and I asked what's happening in the middle, right? Those people who do start a company and they have one or two employees, what's happening? Why isn't like the two-person company growing into not the unicorn, but like a 20-person company? And why doesn't a 20-person company grow to something like a 2,000-person company? There is, there is some, you know, kind of a critical mass of size in whether in terms of sales or employees that I think actually becomes the backbone of communities, of towns, things like that. So I was wondering, why isn't anybody really targeting not the, the person with nothing, but also not the person who's likely to build the unicorn, but people who have shown uh, entrepreneurial initiative. So part of the thing is people don't quite know how to do it, what to do it. And in some ways, as they found out in Europe, the people who are actually running companies, even if they're very tiny, two, three percent companies, are very good at just coming and getting the money if the money is available. Uh, and then they may or may not actually want to grow. And all of that we found out is actually having to do with education. So people do not know, I mean, starting a company is difficult enough, you know that, working with people who may not even have a bank account. But when you think about having started it, you know, now your children have a shot at education, you have, you know, you, you get very nervous about risking that and trying to grow. So without some educational resources, and maybe a little bit more of funding, but also networks, being able to meet people, uh, all of that. So there's a whole bunch of things in the middle uh, that's not happening. And that has been the focus of a lot of my research uh, over the last uh, six years or so. So you had uh, mentioned about the ask. So one of the things I've been trying to teach people is just to ask, but also to ask in such a way that it doesn't become a burden and an obligation and it doesn't become about only what you want, but also you are able to keep your eyes and ears open for what is available. So there are lots of opportunities, uh, resources, if you will, that are actually just strewn along the sidewalk that people don't see. So uh, while I am 100% with you on thinking through how do we get the resources and the know-how 
to people where they need it. I also think just educating them in being entrepreneurial about finding out uh, is also a good way to think about it. So we're thinking about what goes in that development in the middle. Um, and a lot of that, I think, uh, is an issue of education more than the existence of financial resources, as you found out during the PPP. It's not that the money was not there, but people did not know how to get the money that was already there, right? And even in the poorest of communities, I've always found, and when I uh, was in uh, as a, an entrepreneur myself, I've also worked with, you know, some of the most entrepreneurial people live in slums, you know, <laughs> in in places like Mumbai. Uh, and the key here is really this issue of people who go out and ask and get and push and hustle to the next level. And people who somehow either do not do that because they are raised not to do that or because they just don't believe that people will help or uh, nobody has told them just go ask what have you got to lose you know uh, so and that's where some of the principles of effectuation are very useful because it's the talent is there even the drive is there and even the resources are there but it's just not coming together uh, and that is a space that I like to think about and explore in 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 many many different locations around the world and I think you hit the nail on the head. So it's actually education. When I say resource constraints, it's never the money. Uh, it's definitely the education. And uh, I'll actually tell you my story because if I tell you my story, it's literally a blueprint for the effectuation principles. And as I was listening, uh, uh, you know, it kind of came back to me. And I think if you're entrepreneurial enough, a lot of your principles are intuitive in that they, uh, like you said, like it was built out of interviewing these expert entrepreneurs and how they were thinking. So the the premise for why I started this business was that my first business failed. And when I was doing taking stock of why it failed, uh, I was writing it down. And there were many things, for example, I didn't get the unit economics right, things like that. There were some very fundamental flaws. But one of the things I realized was that I, I didn't have, I wasn't educated on this, the, the things that were strewn on the street. And the reason I wasn't educated on them was because as a small business owner, you've got blinders on. You got to be the shipping agent. You're the production manager. You're the customer service agent. You know, one man shop. So I said, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to. I quit my job uh, in 2018. I said, I'm going to go back and make it easy for people with this education piece. Make it easy for them to know what they don't know. And um, and so I did like. And I'm going to tell you my story, but you're going to be amazed at how it follows. No, I'm really looking forward to hearing it. Please. Okay. <laughs> so I quit my job in 2018, June 2018. I uh, went and I saw, I uh, had been writing down all my ideas during my time. I was working at Nielsen. I led innovation globally for them, looking at uh, high-end startups that we could acquire. I was in Tel Aviv, in Mumbai, in Shanghai, in Madrid, looking at high-end startups. I was going to have a baby. Uh, so I said, you know what? I need to repurpose my life. I need to have meaning. So I quit my corporate job. <laughs> and I said, I'll go back to this problem that I couldn't solve for, which was, why did my first business fail? Um, and so uh, I looked at it and I said, okay, what do I know about this? What I know is that connectivity is really hard. It's hard to know where all of these resources are lying. So I said, I'm going to take my nest egg. So I, while I was at Nielsen, I'd saved up about $60,000 uh, in 401k. I said, I'm going to take my nest egg and I'm going to create just a simple prototype. I'm going to take $3,000 and create a simple prototype of my idea. Uh, and I gave myself 30 days. 
And I told myself, if this venture fails, my only principle, only one principle from this whole venture is I cannot become poor trying to become rich. So my cutoff was anything that makes me poor, I will not do. And told my wife, hold me accountable. The $60,000 is all I will spend when it's done. I'm going back to corporate America. I didn't burn any bridges. So I built this app in 30 days because I built all this know-how from across the world on how to build technology. I built this in 30 days. Uh, and so I started going to everywhere and just telling people this idea. I would go to, there is this Kaufman Foundation has a thing called One Million Cups. Every yeah. city has one. So I simply applied to all the One Million Cups around the country. And this was just before COVID. And about 60 of them accepted me. So I booked travel to all these 60 different 1 million cups. <laughs> just booked travel. And because of my time at Nielsen, I had like 600,000 airline miles. I was like 1K with United. So I took these points. No, it didn't cost me a single penny. I booked and I was flying first class because with 1K, even with points, you get bumped up. And I was like, I'm this jobless, unemployed person sitting in first class with all these executives. Uh, and I would go to the city and I just tell them the story. I said, you know what? I'm, I struggled with finding resources. So I built an app that connects with resources. Um, and so June 1st, I quit. October 17th, I was in Denver at this one million cup selling my story. And one guy said, hey, there is a center down the street. Go talk to them because they say they want to do this. I went there and I talked to the government agency. They said, no, we're the government. We don't do mobile apps. This was pre-COVID. Now no government will ever say we don't do technology. <laughs> And then as I was walking out, uh, a lady was sitting at the front desk. She said, hey, what do you do? I told her my story. She said, where have you been all these years? I've been looking for you. I said, really? You've been looking for me? She said, yes. Uh, she said, how much does this platform cost? I had not thought about it because I didn't think somebody would ask me that. So I simply said, $100 a month. She said, great. I'm going to give you one year's money up front. And I want to license this for one year from you. And I was shocked. So we signed a contract. She gave me $1,200. And immediately asked her, okay, you signed this. What do you not like about this? Because clearly she liked something, but what do you not like? So she gave me a list of things that it didn't do. So I went back and quickly prototyped and built all those. The second customer, I was, um, uh, I was basically uh, in Minneapolis selling the story. They said, how much is it? So I said, it can't be $1,200 because it's too easy to get a yes. So I said, it's 5000 They said, great. <laughs> We'll do it. <laughs> I said, no, no, this can't be it. So then I was in uh, Pittsburgh in May. Same thing, just going randomly to events uh, at a bar. And I found this group of men talking and they asked me, what do you do? I was at a conference. I told them what I did. And they said, we've been looking for you for all these years. We've paid a lot of money for something like this. Uh, and uh, talked to our executive director. So I talked to her the next day. She was, I didn't know this. She was the executive director for uh, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, one of the richest, over a billion dollars of assets. Uh, today, just from that one contract we signed with them, we do over a million dollars of business in Michigan. Um, it was simply going out there, <laughs> listening and telling my story. Uh, uh, and so uh, it almost became like planned serendipity. You kept yeah. show, I kept showing up and I kept telling people what I did. And finding all of these stakeholders who raise their hand and say, hey, you've, we've been looking for you and opting in to this process. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the idea is you don't quite know who will raise their hand, right? That's the serendipity part. But nobody will raise their hands if you don't at least ask. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and you ask enough times. And, and my philosophy there is, you know, Snuggy, it's a blanket with two holes. 
is the $20 million company. I mean, if I ask enough people, no matter what you're selling, there is a market with 350 million Americans. There is a market for whatever you've got going on. You just absolutely. have to ask enough time. Yeah, absolutely. And But there is something about this thing of um, uh, seeing this possibility um, that somewhere, somehow, things can happen, right? Sometimes people don't even see that, right? They're so convinced with all the things um, that they're sure will not happen, or uh, they think about all these other things that have to happen first before they will do anything. Uh, so I call these, the, there are these two kinds of walls that they try to climb, but in actual fact, there are no walls there. <laughs> so it's a very interesting thing to get people to see the non-existent walls, you know? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that they can yeah, just right. move forward, you know. And that's what I mean by education. And right? education is about that in some ways, to see um, that there are lots of these limitations that we put on ourselves, which are not as big. A, uh, an entrepreneur that I was talking to the other day was talking about this, you know, you're trying to meet somebody or do something, and you just see these floors of concrete between you and that. And in actual fact, you don't have to worry about the floors of concrete, like because there are stairs, just start climbing. <laughs> just around the corner of the stairs, you know? Yeah. So I've got some more questions for you. Uh, one, did you grow up in Chennai or did you grow up in Mumbai? I grew up in Mumbai. So okay. Okay. Uh, I went to uh, Tamil medium school in Mumbai. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've uh, never so actually I, lived in Chennai. I visited several times because my mother is from Chennai, but I never lived in Chennai. So uh, I grew up uh, in a town called Sirinalveli, which is 12 hours from Chennai. I do know uh, Sirinalveli. So I came here uh, when I turned 21, uh, right? So I had gotten my degree in physics from St. Stephen's College. But I came here because, you know, I looked at this as the land of opportunity. I said, you know, if I want to start a business, I want to come here. Uh, and uh, when I came here, I started my first business, which was actually so, so, uh, a handbag. Um, uh, so, so you went too quickly there. Uh, if I want to start a business, where did the desire to start a business come from? So my, my parents are very, very entrepreneurial. My, my mother left home when she was 16. Uh, didn't ever start a business, but very entrepreneurial in uh, being extremely resourceful. She uh, has been working with underprivileged kids in Jharkhand which is one of the states where coming from Chennai, they said, don't go to Jharkhand, you won't survive. They will, you will literally die if you go there. Uh, but my parents, both of them went and to plus, Jharkhand. And plus people a... from Tamil Nadu cannot speak Hindi. So how the heck do you survive? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, and my parents, uh, both of them learned Hindi, uh, went there and uh, started a, a mission for kids, especially orphan kids and kids who are underprivileged. And I grew up watching my mother do that single-handedly. My mother and my father. My father is a writer, so he mm. didn't. He wasn't involved in this. My mm. father has written like 15 or 16 books. My mother did this, and uh, watching her single-handedly in a town where she didn't know the language, it was fully male-dominated. The only woman in any room, she walked into the only woman. And being able to you know, get things done uh, was something that I really learned. So when I came to the U.S., uh, I went for an international business degree here in Florida. Oh, and okay. to graduate, yeah, that's where it starts. When I went to graduate, you have to do a senior capstone that 
can be a mock or a real business. And I said, if I'm going to write an entire paper, might as well make it into a business so I don't lose all the work. Uh, and so that was the, the first business I started as a actually as a homework as a, as a, a you know graduation requirement for yeah, my yeah. Uh, uh, fascinating <laughs> uh, and uh, and then and then how did you end up in Nielsen then so so I started this work and I started the hardest business in fact sometimes there are businesses you shouldn't start this was an import export business. And as a 21-year-old, I thought I'm going to go change the world. So I said, you know, I'm going to go be mission-driven in India. So I went to these uh, Muslim divorcees who are the hardest group because if you're a Muslim divorcee, you can't leave the house. You are uh, almost like an outcast. Uh, uh, so these women wouldn't, couldn't leave the house. I went and taught them how to do embroidery and how to do handbags. Uh, and uh, it became a, an empowerment movement. So there was a mission or a purpose behind that work. You were really taking the skills that they already had and showing them how you can add value to a product that can sell. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I also don't know how to design. So I hired a handbag designer and who showed them the design. They already knew how to do embroidery. We, we they, they, but they didn't know how to use a high-speed machine. So they would do hand embroidery. Yeah. Really correct, well. correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and these bags were beautiful. There were some bags that over had a hundred mirrors on these bags, so the quality was there. But if I don't know if you have any experience in retail industry, it is the hardest industry to get into because it's about the unit economics. When when Macy's says it's eighty five percent off, they're still making two to three times uh, margin. Yes, and and then it goes to Ross. It Ross is discounted. Even Ross is making money. So. For me, I have to have I have to sell it at 10x, at least 10x yeah. the manufacturing cost, right? And because it was fair trade, a 10x of that product would have been $300. And you can't, you have to create a market or you have to be able to get into the $300 market. So when I teach students who have um, retail ideas or any kind of B2C ideas, I always tell them you have to do B2B2C. You cannot do B2C directly. Uh, that is usually like a lottery, right? The, B, the B2C that just works is more like a lottery or uh, you just happen to get a spot uh, uh, on QVC or something in our days. Although today with Kickstarter, you do have, uh, other ways to do it. Even then, it's a bit of a lottery because when you look at the number of people who do campaigns and the number of campaigns that actually succeed. So I usually tell them, go find a B2B partner of some kind uh, who places a sizable enough order that takes care of your business payroll for a reasonable amount of time. And then you can build off of that and they will do the PR. And then you can create a line of your own that you can. So that's the only way uh, to think about it, or, or rather, that's I think that's a surer way to get to a build a B two C company than if you try to build a direct B two C. So some kind of relationship with somebody larger. So two of my students uh, built uh, a forgetful gentleman, which is basically a bunch of greeting cards for guys who forget, you know, uh, to give birthday cards or anniversary cards or things like that. Uh, so they created a website where you can go and put in all your information. But the thing is, you also get this box 
with all these cards and suggestions on what should you should write on the card, right? So the app gives you the reminder, but you have this help so you can actually be a gentleman. Uh, and you would think at the, you know, in an MBA school like Darden, a lot of people say, what do you mean? Why are you doing this? This is like a bunch of cards in a box. That's your business. Uh, but the thing is, uh, they went out to the farmer's market and learned a lot about, like I told them, put some things together, like uh, students get together over a weekend, go sell in the farmer's market, you'll learn a lot. And the interesting thing was they got a relationship with Neiman Marcus. And Neiman Marcus wow. ended up doing like a special holiday promotion for them just because they thought it was so quirky and interesting. And they had this elephant as the logo, right? The elephant is remembers, right? So for yeah. forgetful gentlemen, yeah. the logo. And that's how they launched it. And so that's just one example that I tell my students. But I think you learned that the hard way too, right? B2B to B to C is always the way to go. Yeah, it, it, it's really hard. So after like four years of doing this, I learned my lesson and that, so this second business has been all about what you shouldn't do because it's not about what you do. What you do is opportunity. What you shouldn't do are your downsides and you got to control that. Like you say, you know, got to control all the downsides. One of the things, even in this business, when I started this business, it was a B2C, but very quickly, the first two months, I pivoted to B2B. All of these people who came and said, where have you been all these years? Where the businesses that interface with clients. And instead of going directly to the client I, or to the customer, I went to the business and then the business white labels our platform for their customers. So it's still a B2B to C uh, yeah. market. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is, this is one of the things coming back to the uh, framing in terms of education, right? Every entrepreneur shouldn't have to relearn this lesson, right? There has to be a way for us to get the word out there uh, and that is the that was one of the most important things from the research on effectuation, this idea of relationships, right? The crazy quilt that drives everything. It's not the product. Yep. It's not the money. Uh, it's not even you, right? It's truly yep. this thing of being able to build relationships with all kinds of people who might want to do all kinds of things. But then you stitch together something, then that creates a new value proposition for everybody. And then that's where you build some kind of, you know, a sustainable stream of revenues. Um, and that is a lesson all of these entrepreneurs that I studied, they had all learned it the hard way. All of them had been through uh, failures as well as successes. And they had sort of patched together this learning uh, by doing it wrong. So, I mean, uh, and that's one of the things I said in my research, I had done it that way myself. And I was like, there has to be a way for us to find out what is it that people are learning the hard way and then teach that in a classroom. At least you get a little bit of a head start so you don't have to invent the, or reinvent the wheel from scratch when you go out there. You know, There are still lessons you have to learn the hard way, but not all lessons have to be learned the hard way over and over again, right? Yeah, and, and I think that is such an incredible uh, lesson in that, you know, even uh, because I know some professors who use the effectuation principle in their programs. And in fact, what I found is that they also give them funding if they go through the program. And the success rate of those entrepreneurs are greater than 80%. Like it's like five times better if you know, and you know, there's a trusted relationship with your professor where you're like, I will take that as wisdom and not question it and not try to learn from failing against it, but take that and yeah. apply. Um, so. Uh, to, to 
finish that story for you. So what happened was that business after four years failed. So I was like, oh my God, I've not only changed, not changed the world. I gave all these women uh, these promises because these women started making more money than the men. And in this rural town in Jharkhand, were riding their bicycles through the center of town because they could all afford bicycles. This was this huge empowerment yeah. movement from being an outcast to being going through the center of the town in a bicycle. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I I so totally appreciate I, that. Yeah, uh, people who haven't been there may not, but <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what it feels like in India. Well, when I went back and told them, listen, you don't have jobs because my business plan was not effective, and you know, I'm sorry, I failed. They said, oh, don't worry about us. All of these you know, skills we've gotten and the fact that people know that we can do this with great work, all of these store owners have already asked us if we ever quit our job that they will hire us. So <laughs> they were like, we're all fully employable now and we gave them the machines to keep with them. So they said, we have our machines at home if we want to work from home or we can come work in the town because we were not allowed to work before. But when they see that we've been doing this great work with a company that's exporting to the US from the small town, they all of a sudden want to employ us in their own stores. <laughs> so it wasn't a fully a bad story. It was my, my ego was hurt, but the the empowerment stayed on. Um, yeah, and, and, and so, I think I think so. There were two lessons for you to learn, right? Uh, the lessons about why it did not work on the one hand, but also the lessons about why that doesn't matter <laughs> when you actually exactly. have. Uh, because at the end of the day, all value comes from not the handbags or or even the customers' wallets, right? They come from the people uh, who are now capable of earning their own living. So that so this is I always say human beings are the ultimate resource, right? This is a this is a beautiful yeah. example of the pilot in the plane, uh, where the, it doesn't matter. Uh, the plane can crash, right? But if, if everybody is the co-pilot, right, we all figure out a yeah. way to survive the crash and keep going. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So I've got one other thing I wanted to share with you. So I know you had mentioned that uh, poem in uh, the podcast you've done with Ed. And so I wanted to share with you. The man so in the, the arena. The, okay. You know this one, right? This is through, by Theodore Roosevelt, the president. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he basically gave this speech in, uh, uh, in the World War II. And he talks about the fact that uh, the reason I came back to entrepreneurship was that it's not the people who tell you how hard it is or the people who criticize you. Yeah. It is the person who's experiencing it in the arena. Yeah. He's the person that counts. And that was a really big inspiration for me uh, to, to go back and start and say, you know what, let's go relive that. Let's go actually try and do it again, but get it right in terms of the things that I learned. Um, and uh, But I was able to, through my education, really through learning over these years, uh, be able to scale rapidly. Uh, you know, this is a SaaS platform that we sell, but in about three years, we've been able to gross over $3 million. So let me ask one, one question. So so this, this venture that you had with the women in uh, Jharkhand, after that closed down, you went back on the job market? I mean, you uh, is that what you did? Yeah, I went to work. Yeah, I went to the job market. Okay. Because I, basically, we had lost a lot of money personally. For four years, we were under a loss. And our CPA yeah, called yeah. us and said, listen, the IRS will not allow you to keep claiming a loss. They're going to consider it a hobby. At that point, yeah. I knew the game was up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so yeah. Um, 
so, so and then thereafter you uh so this is what i said so there is also like the third lesson there right which is uh which is that you can come back you can take up a job and yet in some ways once you have experienced kind of the entrepreneurial bug it's a little difficult to get rid of it so you come back to it as well okay wonderful wonderful to see your journey for sure and uh, and what so the other thing that fascinates me now that you're doing this with people in economic development and at a different level in some ways i would love to know what are some of the things that you have learned through this process in just in the last with, with this venture just working with uh, people in the ecosystem so the, the this has been definitely a lot different because uh, i was able to take some of the past lessons learned very very practical lessons uh, things like uh, being able to uh, to hire someone to complement you very very early on and hiring doesn't mean $60000 i hired someone on upwork for $10 an hour and we would only she'd only work for me for 10 hours a week from yeah. the very beginning um, bringing people onto your vision is really really important and so uh, uh, for me i spend more time with my employees we have about 25 now between full timers and contractors um getting us all mission aligned so we work completely remote even before covid completely remote and uh, because when we have no time clock nobody tells me where they are we don't ask anybody where you are etc but we are all focused on one mission we all know why our work matters and we can draw a direct line from our work whether it is data entry or talking on the phone directly to an end outcome where a small business is going to do better because of our work so creating a sense of purpose uh, has really allowed us to grow exponentially both in terms of revenue but also in terms of our um, employee base that was one big lesson you know i've read a lot about it in books in management books etc but being able to create autonomy mastery and giving them the, you know basically saying here are your incentives the, the mission and the purpose has allowed them to really stay focused that was one big lesson uh, for me uh, the the other lesson was you know they're trying to not become poor so really building within our means and creating everything as milestones i still don't have a business plan i've never i wrote a book for the first business i haven't written any plans for this because uh, one of the biggest thing for me is i will pivot every day as i talk to my customer and i hear from them their pain points i constantly ask myself what do i need to change and use our customer's voice as a primary source of innovation whatever they want so that one is an interesting one right so the expert entrepreneurs i studied do not pivot based on customer voice they pivot based on customer skin what i mean by that is you don't just listen to customers and then you figure out what to do you actually it doesn't matter whether it's customer supplier whatever you get them to commit some real skin in the game and depending on what they commit to the venture you change otherwise what happens is you get all kinds of advice from all kinds of people now you are already an experienced entrepreneur the way you process that kind of customer feedback or information is different from when the people we teach try to do it so this is one of the things you have to be careful about it has to be more yeah, than yeah. just their uh, just their words yeah. right let me, yeah <laughs> let me rephrase that we only when we say customer we only talk about people who pay us we will only listen to you <laughs> if you pay us 
<laughs> exactly. I, so, sometimes I do that with my student. Tell me your definition of a customer. And usually it's some kind of fantasy, right? They've come up with this idea that there is this person I talk to and if they bought and if 700 other people like them bought, I mean, they, they just, and nobody has bought anything yet, you know? And so I tell them until yeah, yeah, they've no, no, paid no, for it, yeah. they're not a customer. Not yeah. only they've paid for it, they have to have paid enough for you to say in business. So unit cost economics also has to be right. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, for us, our business model, the reason why we have not accepted a single round of funding at all it was only my seed capital from my 401k and we've been able to grow this is because every customer has to pay upfront for the entire service. And that's hard to do, right? It's not always possible, but we built a model and we created that discipline where we told all our customers, listen, signing the contract is not good enough. You got to pay me before I start because I don't want to go ask anybody else for money. What they pay us is what's going to help us stay afloat. And therefore the voice of the customer is so important because this person is paying me upfront and then giving me some information that now is going to be very useful information to what I should do next to get more. Every customer we got has influenced how we get more of the same. Of course, there are other parameters of success and how we're moving the needle, but the primary engine, which is cash or, or income or revenue, whatever we call it, has to be stable to even have a company when it's not equity, when it's not you know, venture funded and stuff like that. So in terms of the lessons, you, you're talking about the lessons you have learned through your entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship journey and through building this particular venture um, from your side. What I want to know is what you have learned about economic development, right, through your customers. Okay. I, I, because that is one of the things I am trying to learn more about, too. Like, how does this work? Who makes decisions? How do they make decisions? Like, I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, government agencies and public-private partnerships and lot, there's a lot of money also joshing around in the system. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I was asking the question more in terms of, you know, I'd like to know a little bit more about that side as well, whatever you might have seen or heard on that front, on the, on the, yeah. from the perspective of, the de, de, of development. Yep. So I'll give you your answer, but I'll say there's one problem I haven't solved for and that's, you know, I'm seeking this answer and I'm hoping someday we'll find it, which is uh, in spite of all of entrepreneurship, the data that we see, we haven't really moved the needle on poverty. We haven't really moved the needle on uh, breaking generational poverty and, and helping people like the rich keep getting richer and the gap keep getting worse, even though we're investing so much money in entrepreneurship. And so what is going to be the catalyst that kind of turns that story around and says, we can create entrepreneurship ability uh, at scale on mass level. We can have 10 million people getting into entrepreneurship as a viable path to breaking generational poverty. What is that going to take? So that is a question I have to solve for in terms of what motivates the people we work with. There are about three or four different audiences. Of course, if you're a politician or if you're a city government, votes are the primary drivers. So what drives votes? Publicity drives votes. Uh, you know, image in the in the marketplace drives right? so, so for politicians, it's really about can they provide the infrastructure and and look good in return. So that that's their primary motivation. Uh, when it comes to public-private partnerships or five hundred one c three, a lot of it is grant funded, and there are very specific requirements. Now, right or wrong, philanthropy funds a lot of this, which in my opinion is a wrong incentive because philanthropy should be without strings. We want to help, but in a lot of cases, if philanthropy goes into economic development, they want a return, which is, have you actually created jobs? Have you actually 
move the needle versus creating a safety net of sorts. So philanthropy funded economic development is still a lot of gray area because a lot of it is actually just a one time, let's try to fix a problem. The core group that has both the right motivation and the mandate and the funding are the economic development agencies themselves. And within that, there is a small group for entrepreneurship about, and I've pulled LinkedIn groups, et cetera. I've got a few thousand uh, connections. A lot of the time, entrepreneurship is only about 20% of the overall makeup in terms of spending or even in terms of outcomes they're seeking, um, only 20%. About 50% is uh, retention and attraction of uh, existing businesses. 20 to 30% is over about childcare, housing, uh, and other uh, urban or you know um, uh, other activities. And then entrepreneurship is about 20% in general for economic development. So it's also hard to influence that because they don't see this as a primary driver of their work. Where they does that 20% go? That 20% that is there for entrepreneurship, what exactly are they funding? In a lot of cases, they are funding existing 501c3s that have co-working spaces, or have a local incubator for education, or they will fund small prize money for you know, finishing a pitch competition. And some of it is in just uh, awareness. They'll do conferences in the local city. They'll bring in other people. They'll also fund chambers. Yeah, and they'll fund some chamber-related activities. So that they'll work with the small business chambers and give them some money for programming. But uh, they're not looking for return because it's very hard to measure right? Because these thinkers don't apply for EIN numbers. They don't apply for a lot of things. So they feel like the money is just being lost because they're not able to truly measure the economic activity tied to the money. And that's one of the reasons that motivates us to to be in this space, to actually measure economic activity. So that is where uh, at least one idea um, that a, a couple of colleagues and I have been working on and that I have advocated for is really to view entrepreneurship uh, education exactly the same as science education. That if you get a shot to go to school, even if you get only four years of education, six years of education, uh, you just do elementary school, whatever it is. uh, The idea here is just like you learn the basics of science, you should be taught the basics of entrepreneurship, uh, both in a theoretical way, but also in an experiential way. So we've been advocating for this idea of looking at entrepreneurship as a method. Just we we talk about scientific method, right? And we teach that to kids. It doesn't matter how young they are. We start teaching them very early on, right? Just like you learn reading and writing, you also get some basics of science and math uh, in most schools. I mean, hopefully you get that. Or at least everybody's wanting to give that as part of the educational package. And so the idea was to really start thinking about teaching entrepreneurship as well as this uh, relationship building activity with people and and then using that to solve problems in the community that you live in. So the idea here is you it, if we wait till you know uh, uh, teenagers or you know people who uh, cannot go to college or whatever, but they are already adults, you're getting them too late. You, uh, the toolbox is coming a little too late in their lives. And the idea is if you start channeling it, if you teach, teach them very early on, 
more number of people are naturally going to come into entrepreneurship and then it becomes easier uh, to see the difference because then it's a question of, then you, then you can do what government does best, which is build infrastructure. Uh, like, just like we have built infrastructure for science and R&D throughout, right? All the way from uh, college to NASA or whatever. Uh, and, uh, but the, the, you have to create this pipeline of people uh, who are all sort of educated in entrepreneurship, even if they're not doing it, right? So you you fund, you, there's a reason you teach science to everybody, not just to future scientists. Uh, you teach it to everybody so that the whole community, uh, and that is the fundamental kind of human infrastructure. It's in the minds of human beings, uh, the idea of reasoning in a scientific way. And then a few people will be, make science their career. And that was the same idea here that you want to educate an entire community in thinking entrepreneurially. Uh, and, and then some of them will actually start companies or nonprofits or something. So that's what we've been advocating for as part of that middle class of business idea. I'll send you the paper. The, the main thrust of the paper, actually, there are two things. One is that we want to uh, do education the way uh, we do science education because science education is what built the middle class of the labor market, right? And so the idea is the entrepreneurship education can build the middle class of business. The second uh, uh, point of that paper is to say, we need to focus from, instead of looking only at growth as a dependent variable, we have to look at endurance, right? A smaller company, but that lasts for a long time and create jobs and build communities. So those were the two points in the paper. But is so that is kind of our uh, view of uh, the the problem that you are trying to solve for. I'm offering one possible way to attack it. Yes. <laughs> and and I love that because I think you have a really really great idea here, which is uh, I think that. Uh, labor market of the past looked at STEM education as putting a lot of people into the corporate workforce, you know, yeah. computer scientists and all of these other uh, areas. Uh, if you just add entrepreneurship, a portion of them might self-select to actually go start on their own. Now yeah. that they have the tools for entrepreneurship, just like they have the tools to go work in the corporate workplace. Yeah. Start on their own. Um, also do these B2B relationships. Like, so you, you start yeah. off uh, without ha having to start from scratch uh, and also that people around you understand how entrepreneurship works. So this, this is the idea here, right? So if everybody has a basic uh, training and a little bit of uh, understanding kind of theoretically the framework, but also the mindset, but also actually experienced in, in some small way, then what happens is the community understands entrepreneurship. Right now, the world understands jobs and job market. They don't really understand what entrepreneurship is. In fact, there are young people even in this country, in the US, who are surprised with the idea that somebody actually goes out and actually creates jobs, right? I mean, a lot of really young people do not know that. They, they just think that either you have a job or you don't have a job, as though it's some wild, you know, blueberries growing in the jungle and you just can you can only get, get it. And if you don't have enough trees, you can't do anything about it, you know? Uh, whereas, uh, whereas the idea that you can actually do, that your job can be to create jobs is, it's kind of news to a lot of young people uh, until they get into the workforce. Then, and then, of course, then they are always hearing these weird stories about Bezos or Musk or whatever. Uh, so that seems like so out of you know anybody's reach. 
that it's a uh, people are not really taking that seriously except except in some kind of you know celebrity following way it's not it's not something that you feel is within your grasp in some way right uh, and that's really that's really the uh, one aspect of it that we are trying to so you know the idea is not all about like you know one einstein somewhere <laughs> the idea is all well, of us can do experiments and all of us can like have stuff blowing up in our uh, in our face and understand a little bit about how the universe works right <laughs> uh, <laughs> well that that point actually brings us a full circle because the reason we're having this podcast today is we did a complete rebrand the old brand was called startup space for that one reason what you just said which is that people thought that startup space was for starting a business and the unicorn idea and shark tank and everything. Yes. When the work we were really doing was with the small businesses, trying to figure out these really challenging questions. So we changed our name to Economic Impact Catalyst because that better aligned with our mission, which is really trying to catalyze economic impact and being able to do that at scale and really asking these very fundamental questions. You know, what is it going to take? And and you've made me a convert for life where I, I completely, I think I've done a 180 from saying you need to have resources to asking yourself, what do I actually have? And a, and a really different view on this. And I think that can be very revolutionary as, you know, more and more people start thinking about effectuation. Like I said, I have dear friends here in Tampa who actually have this as part of the program. And we've had them on our team call teaching us effectuation principles in the past. And so it's a huge honor to talk to the to the person who actually came up with this idea, and, and I hope that we'll be able to you know continue our uh, our relationship with you uh, if there is you know a way for us to partner in any way or share even what we see uh, out there um, as we work with small businesses. Would love to you know uh, keep uh, having you influence how we think. <laughs> Truly entrepreneurial, truly effectual, end on an ask, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I, I think you definitely, you, you definitely passed my class for sure. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Count me in. Uh, the, the conversation is just a beginning and it's just wonderful for me to learn about what you have been doing as well. So let me know and we will cook something up together as well. Awesome. Thank you. And maybe even have some real Indian food together someday. So, <laughs> but thank you so much. This was so much fun and exactly what I thought it would be like. So thank you, you know, for, for giving us your time and giving us, you know, uh, willing to talk to us. And truly, you know, you said ask and you showed up. So thank you. <laughs> My pleasure, David. <laughs> Keep up the good work. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development, hosted by David Ponraj. Special thanks to our guests for joining us. Show notes and cover art by the creative team at EIC, edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviewees, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at economicimpactcatalyst.com. All Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates.